0: What up, what up, y'all? It's your boy, She Looch, L-O-X, D-Block, Silverback Gorilla up in here. Ayo, Poe was good, fam. You know what I'm saying? Right now, we po-politicking with my homie Poe. You heard? Poe-politicking. That's, that's hard. You know what I mean? Where self-help meets hip-hop. You know what I mean? That's what it is, man. Poe was good. DJ period. Just two black brothers. You know what I'm saying? We three black brothers. The locks doing what we do, too. You know what I mean? Preserving the hip-hop culture and all that. And introducing the future stars. Hey, yo, keep shining, King. Yo, Ray know what it is, man. We got you over here. You do your thing over there. Shigluch, L-O-X-D block. Yeah, Poe politicking. Peace. Yo, I'm politicking with the homie Poe with Po, po Politikin. Self-help meets hip-hop. That's fucking beautiful. What up, Poe? What up, DJ Period? Just two black brothers. I see y'all out there doing what y'all do. Preserving the hip-hop culture and introducing the future stars. Keep shining, Kings. Real and recognized real. Love is love. Salute. Yeah. Yo, what up, y'all? It's your boy Kissin'. Right now I'm with the homie Poe at Poe Politicking. Self-help meets hip-hop. What up, Poe? DJ period. Just two black brothers, I see you, you know what I mean? Preserving the hip-hop culture and introducing the future stars. Keep shining, Kings. Real recognized. Real. Salute! <laughs>
1: Oh, no, no, no. I got out oh. a long time ago. I got out um, 2004. Oh, OK.
0: Yeah, I didn't so. know if reserves or anything.
1: No, nah, I just oh, I started working in. Um, I was working in laboratory like biotech. So I've mm-hmm. been in that field. Oh, no, no, no. I've been in this plan. 2004. All right. We're going to start right now. All right, Welcome man. back to Polpoliticking.com. Your home for self-help meets hip hop. Right now we're live on YouTube. Check me out on Spotify, Apple and Amazon. One, two, one, two and place to be. Yes, Macie
0: Collier. How you doing, bro? I'm doing good, Chris. I'm happy to be up on your podcast today, man.
1: Yeah, I call you bro, so you you like why are you calling me bro, but you really my brother. You don't even know why. You don't even know why you my brother, huh? <laughs>
0: nah, nah. You could break it down.
1: All right, man. So back in the day, I started my podcast in 2008, but I think before I saw my before I did my podcast, I saw a documentary called Paper Chasers, and it changed my life.
0: Oh, I'm grateful to hear that, man. I'm grateful to hear that. So you you so when you saw paper when you saw paper chasers, did you see it on cable on DVD? Or where was your Where did you experience? I
1: I wanna say I saw it on DVD. Okay. Yeah, I had it on DVD. So I saw I, I know I think you I wanna say, I wanna say it must have been in the source of some. You had it promoting somewhere because I ran across it and I had the
0: DVD. Oh, I, oh, I'm grateful, man. So, so Koch E1 was promoting, you know, Maxi Collier was sitting there looking and counting, saying, When are these motherfuckers gonna cut a check for me? <laughs> but yeah, so, yes,
1: no, so I say, um, I guess, uh, I wanna, so I know the 20th anniversary is coming up, yes, but just before we get into the, the documentary and the purpose behind it, I just wanted you to kind of just introduce yourself to any you know, of the listeners.
0: Okay. well, first of all, you know, I want to say, Poe, much respect to you for 10 years of podcasting, bro. You know, what is it, 300 plus episodes you have up there or something? You know, I started
1: in 08, so I've been 14 years now.
0: Yeah, exactly. So how many episodes total have you filmed?
1: Man, we probably did like. It's a couple of hundreds. I mean, I'm going to say at least
0: 500 probably man man, okay wait man yeah so 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 yeah so you should be putting together like some sort of little compilation of your interviews or we should look forward to seeing some sort of poll politic in book or magazine or some compilation interviews huh correct that's the next step that uh, that'll be great man but yeah so just to give a little background my name is maxi collier i'm a technology creator producer and publisher but i'm really an og and that stands for original geek you know i'm i'm I've been using personal computers since 1981 when I was a teenager, you know, and and it was that foundation of personal computers and hip hop that that impacted everything that I did in media in the years that followed. You know, so I've been fortunate enough. I started my TV career, black entertainment, television in the 90s. I was working there January, January 2nd, 1990. So most of the 90s I spent at BET in D.C., During the heydays of not just, you know, hip hop, of you know, independent hip hop and hip hop and stuff, but also independent black movies, independent publishing, you know, I saw folks coming through BET, you know, John Singleton standing there before his first movie was ever released, RIP to John Singleton, you know, the Huddland brothers coming through there, the Hughes brothers coming through there, you know, Spike Lee, you know, so I was working as a stage manager at BET, and that provided me access to all these people as there was these movements in independent Black arts. You know, again, I, it wasn't just the, the movies. I mean, there was folks like Omar Tyree, the uh, you know, the author who, you know, his first self-published book going up and down Georgia Avenue there in D.C., you know, him coming through um, Zayn. You know, I put the mic on Zane when she, you know, had her first book out, you know, self published, you know, and I, it was doing a show called Our Voices. You know, I put the, the mic on Master P when he was doing his first interview at BET. And I always tell this story about doing the sound check. Um, you know, I had the headphones on and I was getting ready to put the, give him the mic. And then I said, hey, man, can you give us a sound check? And he said, Ugh! and everybody <laughs> cracked up in the studio and they were like clowning them. Now, my family's from Tennessee, and Georgia. You know, So in terms of Southern dialects and things like that, Southern hip hop, that was always a part of me. But there I was in the DMV and they were immediately trying to clown Master P for his sounds, his way of speaking, his way of approaching. But two years later, Chris, from that time I put that mic on him at BET, he was on Black Enterprise for having made his first fortune. In music, you know, so it was during that time there in the 90s, watching all these hip hop heads and all these independent artists, but even more, just as much Bob Johnson, the founder of BET, you know, I've got to talk to him just like you and I are talking now, you know, because and and it, it was before BET went national, it was in like 8 million homes or something. So I got to be there watching this Bob and his wife, Sheila Johnson. A lot of people always talk about Bob Johnson, but his wife Sheila was there for the whole thing. You know, so I, I got to watch them build BET from this mom and pop shop up through being a, a corporate entity. You know, I watched friends who got stock in it and things, and you know, as it went public, you know, so it was just amazing to see normal folks like you and I build, take, share their ideas and their dreams. And then you look up. And it's, you're seeing it manifest, you know, and that's what gave me the uh, inspiration to do Paper Chasers. You know, Let me
1: say, uh, it's funny you mentioned BET because I just interviewed, uh, I don't know if you know Paul Porter. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, his yeah, I son's name
0: last week and his son's name is Chris Porter. So
1: <laughs> oh, no, that's his. That's his, uh That's his. That's his. Uh, he said that's his cousin.
0: Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. All right, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, nephew.
1: That's his nephew.
0: Okay. Yeah. Now wow. I worked with Paul. You know, countless times over the years. You know, when he was the uh, you know, unseen. No, that was adam Jones who was not unseen. BJ. But yeah, you know, Captain Paul Porter. Yeah, the captain. Yes. Yep.
1: Yeah, because he said I know he was saying. So, did you? How long did
0: you work at BET? from, I, I freelanced there for seven years. I worked full time for two years and then five more years I freelance after that. So yeah, I was there all from '90 to 90s. Like I said, you know, I was there watching Tupac when he was watching digital. So here was the situation. You know, I, I was going to Howard University. You know, I had been in and out of college. But I was publishing this little magazine called Black Reflections Magazine. You know, this was back when Black consciousness, you know, it was like the first wave of being woke, I tell my nephews, you know. It was you know, Public Enemy, it was Chuck D, it was KRS-One who were educating the generation of us. You know, and having grown up in the suburbs, even though my parents were Afrocentric, taught us Black history and taught us Black consciousness, growing up in the suburbs, we weren't exposed to these things in, in the school system or even in our general culture at large. You know, so as I got older and as as an older teenager, I began to realize how much history and information had been kept from us. So I took my computer experience. And at that time, the emerging trend was called desktop publishing. Mm -hmm. It was at that time when printing was just moving into the digital world. So I was able to take my computer experience, take this desktop publishing experience, and as a teenager, publish this magazine, you know, and again, I was sharing, you know, talking about The Last Poets, you know, talking about Gil Scott Heron, you know, sharing these lessons that had been taught to me by my parents, my sensei, who was uh, named Ali Hassan, and a bunch of other people. So I I was doing that for a couple of years while in and out of school, kind of dabbling, because what happened when, when I did the little publication, all these OGs started hitting me up about helping them publish their books, their magazines, their dissertations. So at that time, I was the young G who was bringing technology to a lot of the OGs. Mm -hmm. Now... I'm the OG. Or the, or the super OG, you was a super OG, really? Well, now I'm the OG, you know, bringing technology to the young folks and the OGs, you know, uh, so it's, it's like being right there in the middle. And I, I kind of relish this position, you know, my wife and I, our son is 21, you know, so he constantly keeps us up on things related to the younger generation, you know? so So when we talk about web three, when we talk about NFTs, when we talk about the blockchain and some of these emerging technologies, I go straight to the youth all day long. I will humbly get up on Clubhouse and listen to these young folks because they're the ones who are schooling us about these emerging, you know, they're, it's now the digital first generation has grown up. You know, so so there's lessons, you know, again, the first digital thing in my house, the personal computer we got was 1984. I was 15 years old before there was a digital thing other than the calculator in my house. You know, these kids are growing up with their iPads and with their tablets and their other things. They're swiping left and right. And so so what I tell folks is I say, look, you know, if, if we were the old school processors, the 486, the 586 processors, we, this new generation, they're learning 10 times faster than us. You know, they're having to retain 10 times as much information as us, you know. You know what's crazy, man? My daughter, is, my, my son and my
1: daughter are one and two, and they know how to unlock my phone
0: if you're not careful they'll be ordering something off of amazon soon (laughs) and they they, they
1: start pressing their finger next thing you know and i got a password and everything they start pressing their fingers next thing they know they unlock the phone i'm like
0: so i I hear you i feel you so what so what happens when kids start learning how to code in elementary school Mm. you know what happens when they're learning these engineering and math concepts you know, having to know them at a very young age. And and that brings us up to another issue that they used to call the digital divide. You know, 20, 30 years ago, when web 1.0 was first starting, they realized that people who had access to the web and the internet had access to infinite knowledge and resources, and therefore they could develop differently than the people who did not have that access, right? So now everybody's got a mobile phone, you know, everybody's got a computer right there in their pocket, but there are still tools and technology and resources that if you do not know about, your your path in this digital world is just going to be complicated. If you don't understand the concept of a digital wallet, let's just take that, you know, our generation, I'm 53, 54 this year, you know, so my generation didn't grow up believing that you can have a digital picture that could have... Thousands and millions of dollars in value, you know. But this digital first generation—they grew up with the little Pokemon cards, and they grew up with the little Tamaguchi things, and you know. So what I have to do with with my generation and older is I have to make parallels for them. I have to go into these conversations saying, "Okay, yes, you laugh at the kid who who, who spent half a million dollars on the JPEG for an NFT, but you will go out there and chase a baseball card." Or you'll go out there and chase certain collectible tennis shoes or or comics and and other things like that. So the idea of collectibles is not foreign. It's it's consistent across the generations. My granddad and them were collecting stamps. You know what I'm saying? My homies were collecting comic books and the little football players and baseball cards. So for, for this generation, when you get up here with the blockchain and the blockchain is keeping track of transactions publicly for us. You know, that's what the blockchain is. It's a public ledger that's keeping track of information. You know, so now you can have an NFT, a non-fungible token, and, 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 and it could be, show you as the owner is being documented on the blockchain, just like Zillow, just like Carfax show histories of items. That's the same thing that the blockchain is doing for us as content creators nowadays. You know, and not just content creators, content owners. You know, because so when I look back at paper chasers, and when I look at, you know, all these hundreds of hours of videos that we shot, all these hundreds of photos and things like that, but I was forced to try to make a movie that encapsulated all that. So I was forced to make an 88 minute movie, right? But there was all these untold stories, you know? And so for the longest time, people would come back to me and say, Maxie, we want to buy your catalog of interviews. We want to buy your photos. Now for me, I'm sitting here saying, okay, I have a son about to go to college. Should we take this fifty or hundred thousand dollar check? You know, and this is a few years ago. In particular, the business models are different now. You know, there was a certain time where everyone was going out trying to buy people's archives, so that the time that is now they can go exploit them. See, it was there was a lull between the DVD era and the streaming era. All mm. the distribution deals were fucked up for about five or six years because we in the in the two thousands we had all that DVD money we had all those advances and all the production budgets and things like that you know but by the time you get up here you know to 2008 2009 that's when some of your favorite labels start falling apart and some of your favorite artists start dropping off because the record business went through a transition for a number of years as it went digital television went through a transition it's still going through it movies through the transition so the business models weren't clear you know what happened is the technology finally got here but how we were going to get paid wasn't clear for a long time. Like, if you remember, YouTube started in 2006. It was years before they figured out how to pay the content creators. You yeah, know? it
1: was a long time, like probably like six years later.
0: It, it, exactly. And then that's when they opened it up for the masses. And then as soon as it started working, they shut it down and put all these strict criteria because the machine was rolling. At that point you know and so so when we so so that leads us to this discussion of intellectual property and you know whether it's photos videos podcasts scripts books trademarks copyrights the number one commodity outside of digital currencies right now is intellectual property which is why there have been all these institutionalized fuckery is what I call it there's there's been institutionalized fuckery in the entertainment business it first started with financing and production when we had to go beg people for money just because the cameras were so expensive you know but but then it reached the point you know where people started realizing okay let me go grab these movies let me go grab these songs so I can now aggregate like spotify I can grab this stuff, aggregate it together, serve it to people who are willing to pay subscriptions and drop my expenses down on producing and acquiring content because now I'm just aggregator. One of the most successful streaming platforms right now doesn't produce Tubi. content. Tubi, that's my like shit. It. Thank <laughs> you, Tubi,
1: exactly. They was talking like- about, I told my wife the other day, how they was talking about how Netflix dropped all those, those subscriptions. I was like, some of that shit because of Tubi. I don't care what they <laughs> say. Man, and not only that, though, you
0: talk to the filmmakers, they're like, the checks are flowing from Tubi. Yep. You know, and and so let's keep it going. And then the other one, Pluto TV, you know. So it's all these ad-supported businesses are actually where the loot's coming from. So now we see. Tubi Uh
1: said forever free. So Tubi, I just looked on it the other day. It said free forever. So
0: they figured something out. And and that's why Roku channel is, is chasing them. You know, that's why Pluto TV is blue. So, so these linear streaming channels ad supported the main money right now is linear streaming channels ad supported and subscriptions and the only fan model in terms of, as a content creator, these are some of the clearest ones. You know, if you want to sit at home in Idaho and start a business, um, filming videos of your feet, OnlyFans is there for you and they right. will pay you and you will find an audience there. You know, so so think how different that is than the YouTube, where it's like, okay, upload all your shit to us. We're gonna run ads against it, and we're gonna make as much money off of it as possible and may throw you some coins if you become popular. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the subscription model, you could have um to, to use the old statement, a thousand loyal true fans. As was advocated by some in the mid-2000s, the concept of a 1,000 true fans came about. You know, the idea that if you have a 1,000 fans who are paying you $5 a month, you've got $60,000 a year income. If you can create some content for $30,000, then you can keep that shit going just with those 1,000 fans. That concept came about in the mid-2000s. Only fans validates that. You know, as one particular model, and not just for the porn content. You know, there's yoga instructors, art instructors, all sorts of people.
1: Good question: What do you think? So, what's the difference between what do you think between
0: Patreon and Oling fans? So, so with, with Patreon, it's it's the donors. Okay, it goes back to the history of artists going back, back in the time of the Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo and all those things. You had to go find patrons. you had to have wealthy patrons to subsidize your art development and your career. That's the Patreon model. Those patrons, those patrons, most likely, they understand the system of artistic development. You know, most um, successful patrons understand that an artist may make a sketch today, six months from now it may be color, two years from now it may be masterful. So there are typically the art patron is going to be like an angel investor. They're going to be patient to their payoff, right? Whereas in the subscription model, I'm not necessarily doing it out of just the good of my heart. I'm doing it because you've got something I want
1: yep, and I'm
0: willing to pay you for it, you know, and, and I'm, I'm willing to pay you for it. Now, if you stop giving me what I want, I'm probably going to stop, right? Right. But if in the patron model, if I'm riding with an artist, I'm going to roll with that artist until they achieve their goals or until they turn me off, you know. And that's what we're seeing with the NFTs, you know. We're seeing people go jump on Discord, jump on Facebook, jump on Clubhouse, build these small communities around their art, and then go to places like OpenSea.io or Rarible.io, upload their art and bring their audience there with them and begin doing transactions. You know, mm-hmm. and, and and that's why I'm so excited now. But I'll tell you, Chris, there was a period of time where man, I was like, fuck media making, it's only exploitation. And I'll tell you around the time it happened for me, it was around the time when Michael Jackson and Prince died. Okay, Prince, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, right? As mm-hmm. all of them went, you know, I was sitting there saying to myself over and over again, who's getting paid on these catalogs? Mm-hmm who owns these catalogs? Because see, that was what Paper Chasers opened my eyes to. It opened my eyes to the fact that some of our favorite childhood artists that we grew up loving, MC Light, just as an example, did not own their own names, did not own their own works. If they wrote it or if they stole it, someone else owned it. You know, And we can go look through history. So many people were embarrassed to talk to me on Paper Chasers. Because they did not want to say, I don't own my name. I don't own my publishing. If I go out and do a concert tour, I'm having to pay publishers, managers, agents, and I'm getting 10%, 15% of what I'm doing out here on stage, that's straight pole pimping in the negative way. You know, that is straight (laughs) exploitation, you know? And so once I saw that world, and, and here's the thing, it's layers of it. You know, so here you are, you have the successful, you know, a successful label, um, you know, in, in this case, let's take Siobhan Dean and them, you know, I interviewed them um, from Rough Riders, you know, R- mm-hmm. Rough Riders Records. At the time I interviewed Siobhan Dean in the year 2000, Rough Riders was at the top of the game. DMX, R.I.P., Eve, you know, the locks, they were rolling, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But then, but here's what happens, and here's what we saw over and over again. Whether you are the independent artist down in Houston, Sucker Free Records, you know, or whether you are the, the you know, you've blown up like, you know, Siobhan Dean of them. The labels, once they see that you're making money, once they see a particular artist, they're gonna come to that artist and they're gonna directly start whispering shit in that artist's ear to try to form a divide. So you the know, same thing
1: they did with Jay-Z and Dame Dash too then?
0: I mean, at every level. Of you know, so basically, in the mid 2000s to the late 2000s, these independent labels that we were hearing that were getting multi-million dollar deals, they were basically replacing the A and R that we had in the 80s and 90s. It was the idea that if I started an independent label, if I found an artist, if I invested time and money to cultivate that artist, and if I validated those sales, see, at that time, you were able to do distribution deals. You were able to go to Southwest Wholesale and some of these places. Take your physical product, as Luda said, you know, 50,000 sold, $7 a pop, right? Well, he was making it for $1. So you got $350,000 in revenue for something that you made for $50,000. That was, we were able to do that. We were able to build businesses out the back of our trunk in the physical era. Yeah. In this new, and it doesn't matter if it was print books, DVDs, or music, or clothing now in this digital era nah you we have to approach the game differently you know we have yeah, to <laughs> we, we we have to digitize yeah all that ripping and running up and down the roads when we did paper chases we were mel- we were sending we spent thousands on fedex you know i'm gonna thousands. say uh
1: i'm gonna ask you just so because uh paul was kind of talking about the same thing with radio so can you just talk about uh, what digitalization is for anybody listening, so they understand?
0: Yes. Okay. You know, so when 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 radio music, when when Thomas Edison and Marconi and those OG white dudes in the 1800s came up, started these industries. They we they created something called analog, um, analog recording, analog distribution. This is the process of taking regular sound waves, just like if I took two spoons and tap them together, they make sound waves, right? So those dudes learn how to turn those sound waves into electric signals, regular electric signals that could carry those sound waves. That was called analog, right? That was the process of distributing um, the highs and the lows, the peaks and valleys, just like when we're editing and we're looking at the timeline and we see the peaks and valleys of an audio signal, they were transmitting that over radio waves. Now, when things started going digital in the 90s, you know, first it was digital music. Well, first it was digital print, but we're talking about, you know, other media. It was digital music. So some of those earliest computers, instead of using a real piano, now we had an electronic keyboard that didn't sound quite as good, but it had memory. It could store things. It could play back things, all because it was in digital form. Then mm-hmm. when, the, when the CD came out, it introduced people to the idea of digital, because now the world was going from albums to compact disc, And so that introduced people to the idea of digital music. Oh, wow. There's no static in it. There's no pops in it. You know, the the tapes that we used to record, they were vulnerable to the elements. You can have an audio magnetic tape and a piece flake off, and now your sound is distorted. Once things return to the digital, digital was the process of turning these analog waves into what we call binary data. That is zero and ones. That's every single wave song that you see, a wave form, is really built on this binary data of zero and ones you know it's a counting system just like we count in decimals with tens they use the binary system which is zeros and ones then there's another one that we use in computers called the hexadecimal system now more people understand hexadecimal because they're copying color codes from pictures and other things like that most people use hexadecimal numbers in relationship to colors on doing art and stuff online you know so there's binary Hexadecimal, which is counting by 15. Then there's decimal, which we use regular. You know, these were all concepts of digital that we had to learn. um, But now people are learning in use, you know. So it went to digital music. Then we started doing turning video editing digital in the mid 90s. Then we went to digital cinematography later on. You know, so we went from standard definition to high definition to 2K to 4K to 8K to 12K, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so that's all that increasing. So then we started doing the digital distribution of like in 1999, I worked for a company called iFilm, which was one of the first streaming networks. And at that time, we were so excited just to stream little tiny Quarters of a screen, you know, because the hardware and the software wasn't there yet. It would take between 99 and 2006 before that YouTube thing popped off, you know. Now, what we're seeing is a similar evolution as we talk about Web3. Cryptocurrency has been around for 10 years, but it really was during the pandemic and the lockdown. The more people begin to understand that cryptocurrency wasn't just some scammy, weird thing that maybe your cousin got rich on. But it was something that was coming next, just like when we transitioned to home computers in our home and we use Windows. You know, first we use DOS. Then we use Windows. Now we're using Google Cloud and other things like that. Right. So that's what's kind of happening in this cryptocurrency world and in this blockchain world. Some of these things that we're seeing right now, they're the earliest, simplest implementation. They're the pong They're the uh, uh, they're the space invaders. They're the really simple version. You know, some point five years from now, they're going to laugh at board eight yachts, board eight yacht club. You know, they're going to be like, oh, my God, look how simple and stupid that was as they stand in a hologram 3D or some shit. But that's the start of it. it. It took those things to educate certain people. It's taken this NFT hype to educate people about the possibilities. So if we go talk to big Snoop Dogg and his son Cordell, he'll say, yeah, I'm still in the music business, but I'm not fucking with streaming. Even the shows I'm barely worried about. It's all these NFTs. Snoop sold $44 million worth of NFTs for his last album within the first week. Damn. So now you don't have any digital, I mean, you don't have any physical delivery on that. You don't have any labor. You don't have to have some trucks out here driving those things around. How much of that is profit compared to That's the old cool. day? Yeah. You know? So I've been running my mouth, man. I'm, I'm ready for whatever any questions you got. I want, You took
1: me back. I was gonna ask you in 81, what computer was you on back then?
0: Thank you for asking that. It was a TRS-80 Model 1. What did you used to get from Radio Shack? Radio Shack had a series of computers called the TRS-80 Computers. And, and, and that was the first computer. And not only that, though, so I was going to a, a middle school. I was in the eighth grade. And then my family had just moved that summer. I was like one of two Black people in the class. My teacher came to me and said, Maxie, would you like to um, have an extracurricular activity during the lunch break that you could get credit for or whatever? And just take this form home and sign it. So I took the form home and came back. Next day, they put me and a white guy in a room with a TRS-80 computer and a book. That was it. Now I understand that shit was some sort of test, you know, <laughs> but but that's when I, I from that point in October of 1981, the longest I've gone without using personal computers has been two, two weeks while I was in Africa. It seemed like it was a racist test. It was, I'm sure. So who
1: what? Who, who, who I, I,
0: I, I never stopped. I didn't stop. Once the once the experiment was up, I kept going and using the computers and I never stopped, you know. But, yeah, it was they put me. A white guy in a room with a book and a computer and Mm. no instruction, no nothing. Yep. And so that was my launch into personal computers, you know. And the thing is, though, as I look at these new trends, as these new trends come around, I still act like that first day. As I started hearing about the blockchain and about NFT and start saying it's relevant, I start immersing just like I did all those years ago because I understand that that's where our independence lies. You know, it's not just the independence of having enough in the bank account to be called independent. It is knowing this technology that we need to navigate this world that is coming, you know? And there's a whole bunch of young and old folks who are scared of it. But you know, these robots, this artificial intelligence, man, this shit is real. It's here. I mean, It's already here
1: anyway. It ain't even
0: coming, it's already here. Man, I just talked to this dude the other day. You know what his job is? He goes around and helps set up robot waiters in restaurants. Mm. That's his job. He goes around, programs it, walks the robot around the restaurant. So the people, and then at that point, it goes back and forth between the kitchen to the tables, delivering the food.
1: Yeah, I remember like, so this was like 2012, man. I was the manager at the lab. And then even the manager, the uh, CEO dude was telling me, man, he was trying to get this machine, you know, machine work quicker than the people, man. You 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 get that pay that machine one time. You got to pay the people years, years, years. They was talking about that years ago. They have been trying to figure that shit out. They, they yeah. say they they say that's not the reason behind it, but you always know that's the reason behind it.
0: <laughs> uh, hey, man, you know, and that so no, then we have a choice. You know, for especially if you're in college right now, or if you're young folk, because the reality is, young people have more non-college career options now than ever. You know, so I, so my mom still to this day, 75 years old teaching at UNLV professor, you know, five of my sisters, masters, PhDs, you know, but for me and my brothers, we were always entrepreneurs. It was always about, you know, business and arts, you know, so, so when we look at what the world that these young folks are preparing for, if you want to go, you don't know what you want to do, you're trying to figure some shit out, go get a computer security certificate. Oh. You know, go take that eight week, 12 week security, you know, training, you know, uh, go learn how to design some websites at the enterprise level. You know, these things don't take years of training. You know, even as we're talking about the blockchain and token, we are so first generation that if you come across somebody who says I'm a blockchain expert with arrogance, you got to question that motherfucker. Oh. Because anybody who's truly a blockchain expert is going to know this is all changing so fast right now, you know, that we have to be humble and willing to learn, you know. So as I talk about these young folks and we say, or I, again, computer security, career option, never available previously. Um, computer programmer and developer, you know, yes, you had to go to school and study computer information systems previously. No, if you want to learn how to program for the blockchain right now. You can go to cryptozombies.com and learn how to make a game for free using this programming language called Solidity. Mm. They teach you how to use that language by making a a crypto app that you own. You know, Mm. we couldn't do that before. When I wanted to learn about computers, I had to go to the library. I had to hook school in Columbia, Maryland at, at, you know, at 14 years old, jump on a bus from Columbia to D.C. to the Library of Congress to go find some of these books on how to use this technology. You know, yeah. at this very moment, any of our nieces and nephews, any of these young folks in their teens and 20s who are trying to figure it out, go jump on Crypto Zombies. You know, go jump on Career Karma, a black owned company. Where career karma matches people seeking careers with some of these programming certificates and opportunities out there. You know, Young Brothers built that company into a multi-million dollar company just the past few years. You know, so again, I'm excited to talk about paper chasers and what we're doing with the new coming around, but I'm even more excited to educate people about some of these digital opportunities that we have today that we didn't have pre-pandemic. The pandemic accelerated so many things in this technology space, You know, creating so many opportunities. So if people are looking over their shoulder or if you're looking in the rear view, if you're worrying about um, missing out on some past trends or, or you didn't do this, no. You could be 65 years old, newly retired right now. And if you open up your mind, you can learn some digital opportunities. It doesn't matter whether it's opening a Shopify store and selling your own custom merch. It could be going to Amazon, Kindle, KDP, and publishing that book that's been in your head because you can go on to Google and get into Google Docs and click that thing that says voice tool, and you can start talking to your computer, and you can sit back and write your memoir. You can sit back, talk to Google Docs, and write a book. You know, you can write a book, You know, Poe, on, on podcasting, 10 years, lessons learned during 15 years of podcasting. You see what I'm saying? So, and it doesn't have to be a big, expansive book. I wrote something no, say, say what say what
1: I'm gonna say. It's gonna be one page. I'm gonna say the podcasting industry is shady. <laughs> that's gonna be the end of the book. So, you say
0: <laughs> industry rule number 4080 applies to podcasters?
1: <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Nah, yeah, that'd be dope. Nah, that's tight, man. You dropped a lot of game on this though.
0: Well, man, you know, that's that's my objective, because at one point in time, I was so distant after paper chasers came out. And I handed OK, here's what happened. I had this distribution offers and these distribution deals pending. I would take the contract as they would come in from what is now E1. I would take the contracts and I would turn them into mathematical models using Microsoft Excel. So contracts are English language. The way they bamboozle us is using these languages and using the intricacies of this language. For those of us who can think in numbers, we say, okay, let's get out of the words and turn it into a formula. If you're claiming you're gonna pay me some royalties 10 years down the line, let's calculate what that shit may look like with some projections, right? So that's been my approach to contracting and to contracts for a very long time, is to turn the contracts into numbers and models and compare those. So when I did that with paper chasers, contract number, offer number seven from Koch E One, I knew I was never going to make any money. I crunched those numbers, and I knew under no circumstance was I going to make any money. So what that made me do was modify the contract. So the one you're only getting this movie. You are not getting any sequels. You're not getting my master tapes. You're not getting. You're not getting. You're just getting this movie. That's called splitting the rights. You're not getting my book rights, you're not getting my soundtrack rights, you're getting this one movie. And not only that though, I'm limiting how long you have the rights to distribute it. You have seven years to distribute it. After that point, it reverts back to me and the independent film channel, my partners. You know, these were things that I learned at BET. These were things that I learned from folks talking to me about shady contracts while I was standing there as a stage manager and they're sitting here telling me, You know, to see some of our favorite celebrities in pain, upset, because they know they're getting fucked and nobody knows. You know, we all, we heard, it it was news a year and a half ago, De La Soul owes $3 million supposedly for their classic record. You know, everybody was up in an uproar. But hey, you know what? Stevie Wonder just came out of a 66-0 year deal record deal 60 years damn <laughs> can you Im- can you imagine making some shit for 60 so they signed him when he was little stevie wonder huh that's what they did with mc light that's mm. what they did a lot of the og legends were signed as teenagers dj prince paul i interviewed him for paper chasers and he talked about that explicitly about them being signed to deals while teenagers you know, so here you are, maybe with the lawyer, maybe not, with the lawyer, most likely not. But you're now signing away your whole adult professional career.
1: Now I thought about it. You know, I think I got your I think I saw your DVD. I, I rented from Blockbuster. You had it in Blockbuster, right?
0: Yeah, it was in Blockbuster. It was in Netflix. That's how I
1: got it, because I was like, I would have kept it. So I was like, I don't got it. So I was like, yeah, I remember I rented it from Blockbuster. <laughs>
0: Well, I appreciate that, man. You know, so, so that's why now we're revisiting this now, you know, so. that it was real.
1: It was just real, man. Like I thought the realness there, you was kind of like, uh, you was like hitting them like Diddy. I remember you was kind of on them. That's what I remember too. I remember you was, you was on the, on the crew,
0: like making
1: them set their game up and stuff.
0: We had to, we had to, because there was much on the line. You know, we, the independent film channel was a small company at that time, you know, um, I, I had come to them and said, hey, I want to do this documentary project. So what happened is I wrote a book on digital filmmaking in the late 90s. Basically, I took all my like, film and TV experience and combined it with my computer experience, and I wrote this book on digital filmmaking. It was one of the first bestsellers on digital filmmaking. That's what created the opportunity for me to do the Paper Chasers with the Independent Film Channel. you know. And, and so now, all these years later... You know, uh, there was a period of time after I handed that DVD in, knowing I was not going to be getting any money, knowing that my project that I spent five years on was going to be on lock with the distributors for seven years. There was a period of time where I just got mad salty, you know, where, where the business, you know, where I had taken losses and I was like, I was just like, fuck show business. You know, I had thought that our project would be an exception, but it was the norm. You know, and so, but what became the exception was when those rights came back to me, you know. So now here we are, 2022, and I still have all my original tapes, except for about 10% of them. Some of my best tapes were stolen a few years ago. Yeah. But I, I have the book. I can't even talk about it too painful, but I have the books, the bulk still of my library. And, um, and so now what we're doing is, we're doing the Paper Chasers 2 series. And the idea here is no, it's not going to be Maxi in the RV with some people driving across country interviewing folks. It is (laughs) instead I'm putting together a new crew of young folks, of ambitious hip hop heads, entrepreneurs, recording artists, and I'm going to take them back to these cities. And so in those cities, I'm going to do follow up interviews with some of the people I filmed, but I'm going to send these young folks out so they can go experience some of what me and my crew did, the opportunity to talk to one of your idols or the people who you've admired or people who you've studied. You know, I want to create the opportunity for minds to come together, young and old minds. And then also, I want to do a cross-generational look at how some of the hip-hop heads I interviewed before, how now their children are in the game in different ways. So, for example, Jay Prince from Rap-A-Lot Records, you know, when I interviewed Jay Prince, you know, he had a thousand acre cattle ranch in Texas. Right. And I thought that's the shit. Now, twenty uh, years, no. now his son, Jazz Prince, he's the one who discovered Drake. It took Drake to cash money. Mm-hmm. And Jay Prince has an island in Belize now. Yeah, no, he
1: he the homie. He done been on the podcast a couple of times.
0: Oh man, so so now that's what I want to do. Imagine interviewing Jay Prince and Jazz at the same time as we talk about both generations of lessons. Then we go do the same thing with Ludacris and his daughter Karma. Karma has a show on Netflix right now called Karma's World. You know, and and so so it's looking at how some of these heads have prepared their children for the treachery, but also the potential successes of show business. I mean, Benzino and his daughter. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of people out here who have their kids in the business, either in front of the camera, in front of the mic, right. or behind the scene.
1: Yeah, Paul uh, Paul said his son works for Quality Control now. You know, Quality Control is like Migos and all them.
0: Oh, no, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, he said he's
1: he working with them now.
0: Yeah, you know, did, 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 he, did he talk about... uh? The Shady, I'm sure he has so much to say about the Shady. Well, he he has a lot of shit to say. But I tease Paul because I say, see, Paul, when you were young, you were a part of it. Mm. <laughs> you were the voiceover introducing these videos. And he says, oh, no, that music, nowadays, the music. No, I say to people, come on, y'all, let's not romanticize it. They said, checkbook, credit cards, more money than a sucker could ever spend. They've been talking about money in hip hop from day one. Yeah. They, you know they've been talking about cars and hip-hop at day one they've been talking about women hip-hop in hip-hop and day from day one you know so we at, and every generation has the material and the underground hip-hop you know just like right now a lot of us have been invigorated by this group Coast Contra have you checked these these young dudes out hmm. oh please check out Coast Contra they, they got this old school Jurassic five or some of these other groups but they're just off the chain. Straight up, real, you know, authentic hip hop, you know. But again, though, we can sit here or, or even Tech Nine, you know. Tech Nine is, you know, he's he's in his fifties, you know, or late. Or he's in his forties, you know. But he's just blown. He's an MC who's built his own lane. He's put out his own music. He's handled his own business. You got
1: the rock rapping.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, but he's he found an audience. Yeah. Whatever, because because that's the other thing too. The OGs, we were all about genres. I was East Coast. So when I was coming up as a kid, if you didn't come from New York, you weren't hip hop. Now, the funny thing is we were in Maryland, (laughs) Uh but we still rocked that attitude. You know, if you weren't a DJ or MC or a B-boy or a graph artist from New York, you were not real hip hop. That was our generation's attitude. Right. But then we can go look at, at, you know, Little Nas X down there in Tennessee, Nashville, connecting to a producer over in Sweden and Mm -hmm. making a hip a hit song. You know, and so 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 I'm, I'm not quick to try to um, put things into the old genres that we came up with because the radio stations and TV stations, they force that on us. Mm. Right. When we look at some of these young folks now, man, they're breaking all sorts of genres and, and, and just making their own lanes. You know, it took me it took me a minute to understand Tyler, the creator and the I futures crew. Right. Yeah. Because the OG head in me was like, man, look at these kids. They like throwing up and they doing shit and they talking all the drugs, you know. But then I had to shift my head, my focus, and really not let that um, thing bias me. And then I saw, oh shit, Tyler's a genius just like RZA. Mm. He brought a crew of people together and he did AR with his homies. And then he created a business and launched careers. I love Vince Staples. You know, and so so when you look and see how the generational bias is kind of like thinking, keeping us thing, our music's better. What we had was better. The world's better. Oh, these kids just fucked up. <laughs> nah, man, I'm like, come on, let's listen to these young folks. Let's listen to what they're scared about. Let's listen to what they're excited about. Let's listen to the tech that they know. OK, now let's share with them. Let's share with them some of these business lessons that we learned. You know, let's share with them some of these management organization lessons that we learned, and let's let this shit be cross generational. We grew up thinking that the OGs and elders had all the wisdom. That's the way I was raised, you know, from my family in Maryland, but we were Tennessee and Georgia roots. So we were taught that the elders had the wisdom. And it often meant shut up and be quiet when listening to the elders. Yeah,
1: I had to learn that in my hard way. It's some old fools walking around, though.
0: And some young geniuses, some young um, gods, some young gods who got their head right, you know? you know. And, and then the other thing is we talk about all this that I had to learn, and again, this is gonna be a whole nother documentary for my son and I, is, is the role of being on the, um, the spectrum, the autism spectrum, and the role that that has in arts in the black community. So my son was diagnosed with autism as a young boy, right? But as he got older and I saw some of his habits, there's one called rumination that's focusing on something. You know, you play a song today, I could play it 20 times over and over. That's called rumination, mm. right? There's something else called stimming that's constant movement. That's the, the need to constantly do a movement, right? My friends would tell you, I'm always rocking, I'm always moving, you know? So I recognize, oh shit, in my 40s, I'm on the fucking autism spectrum. Mm. My dad was a psychiatrist, he had to know. But what he did was normalize his kids to the best. He had eight children, you know, so to the best of our possibility, he taught us, you know, how to deal with the anxiety. Like, so right now, you all these young people talk about anxiety, you know, and things. I didn't understand that by being on the autism spectrum, that social anxiety is one of the aspects of it. You know, I always have the ability to talk like you and I are talking right now. I could talk for hours. Look how much I've been running my mouth. But get, get me outside of here and ask me about shoes, ask me about basketball games, ask me about some shit. And I'm going to be the quiet guy over here where my brother's over there talking, you know. And I learned that that ties into my social issues, some of my social issues with me being on the spectrum, you know. Mm-hmm. And and, 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 and so, so the best of my strengths are tied to some of this, you know. And some of my greatest life challenges have been tied to it as well. It's just I didn't know. You know, and so so now we have a world where young people can be um, properly or improperly diagnosed with things if, you know, get help and treatment and get support systems. You know, when I was coming up, I only it was either short bus or gifted and talented. maxi you belong uh, in one of them. <laughs> right. You know, and so, and so it was the constant fight to keep me out of the short bus, but they wouldn't let me into the gifted and talented. Yeah. You know, so now when a child is properly knows their special gifts and knows their special challenges, they can be guided and coached and mentored in whole different ways. So one size fits all teaching, that shit's done. Thank God, you know. Now it is IED, special individual education development programs and all sorts of things. You know, these, when they're not seen with negative stigmas, can be such a saving grace for people with specialized skills, you know. When our son moved with us, uh, you know, I I fought for years for him to be able to come live with us. At 18, he moved with us in January. Right. We were quarantined together starting in March and we saw and he was registered in college. He had done one semester college before, but he struggled through it. He moved with us. My wife and I, we immediately started from ground zero with the study skills, the reading skills, the anxiety management techniques What's ground zero. Ground zero is literally starting from a book and saying, read five pages, take a break 10 minutes because he couldn't focus. Hmm. You know, all right, cool. Take a break, let's do some push-ups, let's do some, all right, let's come right back to the book. So we had to teach him focusing techniques and we had to teach him stress management techniques and anxiety management. I was a martial arts from a young man. Those were techniques that were built into my childhood as a result of that. So we had to teach him meditation and breathing and things. And I'll tell you right now, Chris, I thank God. You know, our son right now, and he was only in two classes each semester, two classes, two classes. Right now, he is almost a junior with 18 credits right now, he's in his final exam week. This has been the semester where my wife and I have helped him the least, and he has a 3.7 GPA. You know, he, he got scholarships and everything, you know, but we say to ourselves, what if we hadn't caught him? What if he had only been subjected to this traditional system that makes him feel fucked up or less than, you know? And and so we caught him, you know? And so that's part of my um, value that I want to do when we do this documentary talking about autism in the black community, you know? I want to remove the stigma. I want to address strategies and techniques. And I want to talk about how many of us have been self-medicating for years. You know, cannabis has been key to me, sleeping and slowing my brain down and dealing with anxiety for years, long before it was popular, you know?
1: No nah, man, you was talking about that school shit, man, you had triggered me, man. Cause I remember like, I was in like the first or second grade and I was studying for the, they had me going to the you know, gifted stuff and testing for those, but I didn't make it. But then one of my teachers, she was a black teacher. And I guess I was in there just acting up cause I was always just like active kid, class clown. And she sent me to the special ed class. And I'm in there like, I'm even when I'm little, I'm like, what the fuck she got me in here for? I ain't like these kids. And then she brought me back. When I came back, she was like, "That's how you there. I'm like, "Man, these teachers like that's why I'm like really nervous about putting my kids through school because they try to curse you and just put stuff on you."
0: Yeah, yeah, and not only that though, you know, they try to label you, a brand you from kindergarten, and have that shit follow you all the way to high senior graduation if you're if you're not careful or intervention. But but again though, online learning, you know, a uh, uh, special class. There's in charter. yeah we, were that charter
1: pro- yeah, we were saying, yeah. was going to say we doing a charter program
0: for the Yeah. Our yeah. You know and 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 again understanding that each person learns differently. You're going to have somebody out here who can learn all day long from videos. Somebody else needs to hold a book. Somebody else needs to hear you say it. Somebody else needs to see you do it. You know. So now they understand that there's different teaching and learning styles, you know. But before it was, you know, and like you said, one teacher, one book, one assignment. 35 students, <laughs> you know, either you getting it and following the masters or you are not, you know,
1: so I'm hey, sorry to said- trigger you,
0: man. I'm sorry to trigger you, but many of us went through that shit, bro.
1: And then what you were saying about, I was going to ask you, we about to wrap it up, but I want to ask you about the martial arts a little bit. So what are you training?
0: Oh oh man. So my granddad, so, so my granddad, uh, was a part of my life all my life. So when we were kids, he had us boxing, you know, and uh, but I always had so many brothers and sisters, and cousins. So we were always then okay. So we always scrapped. You know, we always scrapped. It was just always a bunch of us. You know, we were, we were always roughhouse. Um, but then when I was fourteen years old, um, I was a breakdancer. By that point, I met a guy named Ali Hassan in Baltimore, and since Ali Hassan had been part of a team called the Avengers, and the Avengers came out of Baltimore, world famous from a guy named Riley Hawkins riley hawkins had gone over to vietnam and learned martial arts came back into the hood of baltimore cherry hill and started schooling these young cats mm-hmm. and so at a certain point in time the avengers were famous up and down the east coast for the wet for their fighting style and stuff like that riley hawkins since they ali assigned so there i was 14 a break dancer and i met ali assign And he helped channel all that breakdancing energy into martial arts, you know, and, and, you know, to this day, I still do my nunchucks and, and I'll tell you, I got a secret plan that I just put out on my calendar, where I'm preparing myself to lose weight, train and do my first karate tournament in 20 plus years, you know, it's going to be August 5th through 7th in DC at the Capitol classics. I'm going to be up in that motherfucker, you know, my first tournament in 25 plus years. Because what happened when my son went to school, all of a sudden we had empty nests and pop start putting on the weight and pop start getting lazy with training. So now I put that as my own goal. You know, the D.C. Capital Classics, which I competed in all through the 80s. I'm going to go ahead and do it in the 50 plus category this uh, fall.
1: you got to keep us posted?
0: Yeah, I will indeed, man. You know, especially as the training progresses. Now, what about you? Your martial arts, What's your martial arts background?
1: Uh, no, I don't really, I just like, I like, I be boxing a little bit. I was trying to, I was thinking about getting into boxing. That's why I mean martial arts is i asking. Like okay. one of my, fr- I met this one guy, he says he's a sensei for Chinese boxing. So he mm-hmm. was telling me about that. But only thing I do on my own is like, I just box on my own. I've been doing that for like, I think I started like 2018. Okay. So I've been doing the boxing since then, but I'm thinking about other stuff. Then I went to the UFC gym. But um, I don't really like wrestling like that. I just, I don't like more striking and shit. But I'm trying to, I was throwing, I got a heavy bag out in the front, man. I started throwing uh, kicks. I was like, damn, it's hard throwing kicks. I'm just used to throwing my hands. I was like, damn, it's hard throwing kicks. So I was like, let me start incorporating more kicks into my um, workouts too.
0: So if you want a traditional school, there's actually, so the style that I was trained in was called Okinawan Shoren Ryu. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's actually two of those schools. There's where well, there used to be one right there in Vista, and one in. uh So there's there's a couple of good traditional martial arts schools. Over That's there. the one my
1: uncle like growing up. My uncle used to do. Uh, I know he's do the Okinawa one. Then he's like, you know, I used to train with him. So uh-huh. I guess you count that when I was little. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, that was a hood way. Somebody in the family learned. They come back and show you. That's how he was
0: doing it. Man, come on! That's what Riley Hawkins did in Baltimore. You know, and again, the idea that one person could influence so many generations of people. You know, so so yeah, I'm looking forward to doing a a, a, a classic martial arts you know movie one day. I've got several ideas in mind.
1: Yeah, that would be tight, especially if you just highlight like the you know black martial arts because there's a lot of them that we don't know about.
0: Oh, oh man, you get on Instagram, these young kids. Man, they are so inspiring with their combination, the martial arts, gymnastics, tricking, parkour, you know, all these sports, man. I'm just, you know, as an old school B-boy, you know, whose whose knees are saying, you can't do none of that shit no more. I love what what this new generation is doing. You know, I I love the the fact that the next levels that they've taken it to. I mean, in martial arts and in breakdancing, amazing. And the next time you come out of San Diego, we got to catch up. Yeah, man, definitely, man. We love that, man. You know, I miss... I miss uh the ocean and, and everything, but I uh, love Vegas as well. Yeah, it's, a, it's expensive out here, but it's expensive. That's the only yeah, thing about yeah.
1: here.
0: God damn. Yeah, but then when you get up here to that desert, you miss that ocean breeze, bro. <laughs> uh-huh. And then I would say, what would you like to say to your fans and supporters? Um, my cousin once referred to me as Finding forester. And he said that because you know my cousin troy he'd be out doing video productions all over the country and he'd come across people who either had been in paper chasers or were fans of it or were my supporters you know along the way and he, and he would put people on the phone you know and i would always say thank you for believing in me then but please check out what we're doing now because we're pulling all that experience up to create something new and great in our platform that we're building now it's called contentcreators.me. And so content creators combines online training classes with templates and specialized apps to help make it easier for people to create videos, podcasts, books, websites, and things like that. You know, so please check us out at contentcreators.me. But most of all, you know, don't get discouraged by the fuckery that you encounter in this business whether you're male, female, or other, at every step of the way are gonna be opportunities to compromise yourself, to compromise your art, to compromise your crew, your business. You have to maintain that focus and that vision and passion. You know, Damon Johns told me, pioneers get slaughtered, settlers prosper. Mm. So know when you're being a pioneer and have realistic expectations and know when you're being a settler and adjust your expectations and run accordingly, you know. The the game is changing and evolving. What worked a year ago, what worked two years ago, pre-pandemic, clearly is not working now. So the Etch-a-Sketch has been shook and there's things, uh, opportunity for fresh ideas, for fresh presentations, fresh fresh business models. Carpe momento, seize the moment. Seize these moments that we have right now and make something great. And by all means, shoot me an email, maxi at superlivestreams.com and share what you've made great with me. I would love to see it and share it with the world too.
1: Hey, bro, I want to say thanks to coming through Politica with me.
0: Hey, hey, Chris, man, again, much respect to you, bro. And I look forward to seeing this podcast. And please keep doing what you're doing. And definitely don't, you know, there's a website called CJ, commissionjunction.com, right? You can mm-hmm. go on cj.com and you can find companies for affiliates. Mm-hmm. So for example, Direct TV at one time was an affiliate on commission junction. You sign up there, they give you a phone number, you can shout that out in your podcast and say, "Hey, sign up for Direct TV and I get a little cut." So these are ways that you can monetize your podcast. Again, I mentioned the idea of you transcribing. There's a service we use called Descript. Descript.com will let you help you transcribe your podcast. You can Here's how dope this is, Chris. You, it turns your podcast into audio and then it lets you audit, edit your podcast using the words. Mm. So you can go in there and delete and or a word from the trans- tr- transcript. It deletes it in the audio and video file. Wow. Yeah. So so now imagine you take the best of and it's called the best of Paul Ticket. And it's, I will buy that book. You know, it, it can be 10 of, you know, hundred, not even 50 of your best interviews. You take a screenshot, Take the transcription, and you say, "If you want to support me, just buy my book." You see I'm what I'm saying?
1: It. Yeah, I'm on it. Yep. So, it's so been in my years,
0: I just ain't did it. Yeah, I got to get it done. Well, well, that's where sites like Fiverr mm-hmm. and and Upwork they can help with that mm-hmm. because now now you can go to Upwork.com, you can go to Fiverr.com, and you can find that help. So now it's not it's not just you. You know, you can find someone who every episode they transcribe it, make a thumbnail, and get that back to you for $10, $15, or whatever it is. Because that's the other thing that I learned we have to do to elevate ourselves from individual artists to enterprise is that we have to bring on people. No matter what mistrust, what worries, or concerns, we have to bring on other people to help replace what we do so we can go focus on other things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, brother. I'm going to have to, yeah, we're going to have to catch up soon. I'm going to have to, um... Talk Come to on to Vegas. Again.
0: Let me know when you're up in Vegas, man. All right, for sure. I will. All right, for sure, man. I appreciate you reaching out, rescheduling, and being a, a supporter for so